0: Welcome everybody to the COHK Anthropology podcast. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Professor Gordon Matthews, a long-time professor at the COHK Department of Anthropology. Gordon has written about what makes life worth living in Japan and the US, about the cultural supermarket, about the Japanese generation gap, about what it means to belong to a nation in Hong Kong, about how different societies conceive of happiness, about Chungking mansions as a global building, and about low-end globalization around the world. Welcome, Gordon, and thank you for accepting our invite to speak. Sure. Um, I thought to begin with, You've had a long career in anthropology. Perhaps you could tell us how it all started. How how did anthropology become a part of your life?
1: Well, it didn't for a long time. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I can't remember, but I don't think I took a single anthropology course. Maybe I took one, but I didn't really think about anthropology at all. What did you study, can I ask, Gordon? Well, I studied American studies because it didn't require much of anything. I wanted to be free and take any courses I wanted to take. Um, So that was really the only reason, not that I was particularly interested in the United States. Um, But in any case, I decided after uh, my undergraduate career that I wanted to live overseas. So I got a degree in teaching English as a second language and wound up in Japan for, oh, a number of years, six or eight years teaching. Well, and uh, after my first three years, I came back to the U.S. and realized that, well, my time in Japan didn't mean anything because people come back here and say, where were you? Japan. Nobody cared. So I was wondering what to do with my life. And I I went into the office of a professor. This was at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And uh, he was teaching a course. Uh, He was an anthropologist. And he said, well, take my course. And I did. And I kept talking to him, and I realized that the best way for me to make use of my time in Japan was to go back, learn the language really well, including reading and writing, and understand the society really well, and then study anthropology. So I did that, and uh, I wound up in anthropology. Now, for all of you here listening, remember, you don't have to do anything quickly. I didn't take my first anthropology course in the world, as far as I can remember, until I was 30 years old. Wow. I didn't enter graduate school until I was 30, 30 years old. I guess I was 32. I didn't become a professor until I was uh, almost 40. So you do got plenty of time in that sense. Now you could look at me and say, "Damn, you're old." Okay, in that sense, you do got plenty of time. But simply in a um, in terms of deciding on a career, take your time. So
0: uh, you you went back to Japan. Um... Gordon, and, and how much more time did you spend then? And, and so what does that mean in, in total, in terms of the total amount of time? And how did your research interests then gather, you know, as you continued?
1: Well, I never took uh, any courses at Japanese universities. My, my work then was running a school, an English language school, with a Japanese friend of mine. And so I went back and I was still working. It was more a matter of what I would do in my other time, uh, you know, keep studying Japanese and learning all I can. Now, I did discover fairly early on an interesting topic. Uh, as I, I've related on a number of occasions, you know, one of my Japanese friends and I were climbing a mountain and he, we got up to the top and he said, ah, oh, kori gaida, this is uh, my purpose in life. This is what life is all about. And I said to him, what did you say? So I learned about this term ikigai, and that became my dissertation research and my first book eventually. But I didn't plan it out all that well. It took me a while to realize this was really interesting. Uh, What I I guess the most important thing about being in Japan did for me was I, I came to know an awful lot of people good friends of mine, and they're still friends of mine now. So, you know, I, I go back to Japan every year, talk to my friends, find out what's happening in their life. And a lot of people's lives, you know, I've known them for, oh, 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I trace them out from when they were in their 20s up to their 60s, or in their 40s up to their 80s. I can look at how their lives have unfolded as Japan has changed. So it's been really a lot of fun to, to follow their lives. And, and with their permission, of course, write about what's happened to them in their lives.
0: Right, right. Uh, Gordon, your journey seems accidental in anthropology almost. You know, it, it started with work. Um, but what do you say to, you know, to, to, to people growing up in our times, you know, when, when there's so much pressure to try to get out, uh, get through university, get a job. I mean, how does your research in, in meanings of life, actually speak to this topic. This is a concern for a lot of young people.
1: Well, the the truth is, life is almost entirely accidental. Hmm. Um, You know, life is one big, long accident. We don't control very much of anything. So that has to be remembered here, that, you know, it it, it really is a a series of accidents. Uh, Why did I marry the person I married? Well, I, I, I love her very much, but why did I meet her? Why not any of 500 other people? accident. Why did I go to Japan? Um, If I had studied English a year before, I probably would have wound up in Iran or some other place. (laughs) So it's all, you know, accident plays a huge role. And that doesn't mean don't follow your own interests. It doesn't mean don't find out who you are, because you do this. But um, anybody who thinks that they have determined their course of their life is likely to be fooling themselves, because chance plays a huge role. Now, probably more of a role in in somebody like uh, me in in living their life, because if people do follow a a somewhat more conventional path, it it may be less due to chance. I mean, you you get out of college, you go to work for this company or that company, you you know, know, climb up the hierarchy. You know, that may be less due to chance than my own life, but Mm -hmm. chance has been a major part of it. Mm -hmm. And should I, should I, I think, again, don't plan out your life well, do it, but remember, you are going to be subject to chance. Right. Should, should I
0: then ask you, how you, did you come to Hong Kong? Um,
1: well, that was one more chance, <laughs> one more big accident. Right. Um, I, I submitted jobs probably to, oh... 60 or 80 or 100 different places. I mean, every fresh PhD and you included have done the same thing. We all know what that's like. And as you know, and as we all know, it's a very discouraging business because the vast majority of places aren't very interested in you. They might send a brief letter back saying, sorry, we're not interested. Um, Hong Kong was, and I don't really know why, but they were. And uh, So I thought, do I really want to go to Hong Kong? Yeah, it might be kind of interesting. I think I'll go. And so I did. So, again, that, too, was chance. And um, there was an American university that uh, offered me. It didn't formally offer me a job yet, but they indicated they would that replied to me uh, about a week after I had said yes to Hong Kong. And it would have been interesting. That would have been a whole different experience in my life. So, again, it's chance. One more play of chance. Now, having said that, am I uh, unhappy having come to Hong Kong? Of course not. I've loved it here greatly. I'm very happy to have been here all these years. Um, But uh, it it was chance. It was like flipping (laughs) coins that made me wind up in Hong Kong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell tell us then, Gordon, how, how is your research interest? Uh, How have your research interests shifted? You know, as you've come to Hong Kong, uh, you're you're dealing with a different, presumably a very different socioeconomic environment. Um, How has that uh, changed your focus um, in terms of topics?
1: That's a good question. Now, one thing I planned out when I first came to Hong Kong is that I can still continue to do research in Japan. And of course you can, it's a lot easier to get to, uh, uh Japan from Hong Kong than it is from, uh, any U S site. Mm. So it didn't have to change, but, um, at the same time, I realized pretty early on that Hong Kong was a pretty interesting place. And so I began focusing on Hong Kong too. So you could say that, uh, coming to Hong Kong brought a whole new set of research in, into focus and, uh, Uh, That was quite interesting that I was able to do it, and I'm very happy that I was able to do it. Now, Hong Kong is a strange place for someone like me to do research, because on the one hand, it's easy to do in the sense that uh, almost all educated people speak English pretty well. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I will never be as good an anthropologist of Hong Kong as a native speaker of Cantonese. You know, because they know the society. They can look at a Chinese newspaper and read it without much problem. It, it, it's an enormous problem for me. That's one reason why I turned to chunking Mansions for research, because I, I was thinking, where can I do research that all of these great local anthropologists probably can? And it was chunking Mansions. Why? Because uh, if they're Chinese and come into Chunky Mansions, they're liable to be thought of as an undercover cop or a government spy. Whereas me, they won't think of me as that. They might think I'm CIA, but then I would say, if I was CIA, do you really think I'd be in Chucky Mansions? So the overall point is that um, for me to be in Hong Kong, that was a good place to do research because it's a place that I, as a non-Hong Kong Chinese, could indeed do research as, as good as that which any local anthropologist could do. So is that chance again? Yeah, I guess it is. But, you know, the key to life is always make the best use of chances. chances. But my own philosophy of life is say no to almost nothing and say yes to almost everything. And whatever comes up, uh, great. You'll you'll have a good experience. Well, well,
0: Gordon, it, it seems like uh, your Chongqing mentions uh, research has, has really brought a lot of attention um, to Chongqing mention itself and, and to, you know, the, the whole topic of... Of low-end globalization. Um, what what do you see of that project now? Me- meaning low-end globalization? is is that something that uh, that is
1: still at play in this part want to of the answer world? That question directly, although I certainly can. Hmm. Um, I was thinking of something else as you were talking that I, I think may be even uh, more important for your audience to hear, which is that some professors, do pretty much the same thing. Mm. In other words, they start off by studying a topic and then they make it their whole career. And that's fine to do if you want. You can go deeper and deeper. I could have gone deeper and deeper into meanings of life in guy and made it what what I basically did. But I've never been like that, really. I always like doing different things. Mm. And so if you start off from what makes life worth living, And then move on to some of the other things that I've written or been involved with, like the Japanese generation gap, and then move on to happiness worldwide, and then move on to low-end globalization and chunking mansions. You know, these are all in very different categories, and I haven't mentioned a bunch of other stuff I've done. I would rather do it that way because it makes life more interesting. Now... Is there a problem with this? Yeah, it probably makes me a dilettante professionally. Uh, I'm not a great specialist in anything, but it still keeps me young intellectually and that there's always interesting new things to discover. And what I found as I grow older that a lot of the talks I give are on really, really different topics. Mm. So that what have I talked about this year? Um, I've given one talk about Hong Kong identity, past, present, and future. And that was an interesting topic in the wake of the national security law and so on. Yes. Um, I've given another talk on, um, it was against productive aging, for happy aging. Why Mm. did that happen? Well, it's because a lot of my Japanese friends are getting older and I'm studying aging in Japan. What does it mean to get older? So I have this whole library full of uh, self-help books for Japanese getting older. Well, I'm reading those and I'm talking to my friends so I can talk about this and talk about my own life in that context. Um, Another talk. This isn't a talk. This is a paper I just submitted yesterday is on do African traders exploit or help their customers back home in Africa? And that's a pretty interesting topic. And what I did for that is I teach a class of, of asylum seekers, but a lot of African traders come to that too on Zoom every Saturday. And I just throw this out. Hey, you guys trade. Do you cheat your customers? Let's talk. <laughs> and we had these long, interesting arguments and debates. And they were talking about bribing customs and how you can't do it anymore because of computers and how we brought smartphones to Africa. We made our country better and all that kind of thing. Great. Great. It was great to do it, but that's a whole other topic. I was able to write about. Um, there's all of these different topics. And there's a bunch more. I mean, happiness worldwide, so on and so on and so on. There's a bunch more that I've been able to do that really make life interesting because there's so many different things to deal with. Low-end globalization, yeah, that's one thing I do, and it's pretty interesting. Can it still happen in an age of the smartphone where everybody knows everything? You can't cheat people much anymore. I don't know. It's a good question. I was just writing about this yesterday. But anyway, this is one of a bunch of different things that are really exciting to be working on. Another thing I just wrote about, uh, I have to work on this paper a little bit later uh, in the week, is that of happiness and home. And what mm-hmm. does home really mean? And that's a more philosophical paper. But I was dealing with the fact that we, no, none of us really have a home. The idea of, a, of a, a place that's a home is an illusion, really. Because, I mean, look at Hong Kong. You think, oh, this is home. No, it's not. You may think you own a flat, but the government owns that flat. At the end of the day, they own the land. Everything you have is temporary. Because of death, all home is temporary. Now, that sounds very philosophical. I guess it is. But this still is something I have a great chance to think about. Um, and it's, it's fun to have these opportunities all the time. So it's a lot of fun to be an anthropologist because I'm not, this is only personal now, but I'm not cut in one rather narrow path I've got to follow. No, I think about anything that's interesting and all
0: kinds of things are interesting. Although, Gordon, one could say that you started off with a very broad campus. I, I mean, a canvas. Uh, you started with the question of the meanings of life and everything can go in there, um,
1: including happiness, Um Including, Remember, um, I didn't start off with meanings of life mm-hmm. and it, it would be I know I teach a course of that name so it sounds like I did but but I didn't I started off with a very particular Japanese term ikigai mm-hmm. so it was ethnographically specific I was looking at what Japanese mean when they use a term like ikigai and then I also asked in that book well um is the same thing true in America? Is it true in other societies, even if they don't have a word for it? So it's a very ethnographic project. Um, yeah, I teach a course called Meanings of Life, but one reason I have a title like that is I want to get lots of students coming to the class because <laughs> it helps my department to get lots of students. I mean, Meanings of Life is an interesting topic, but as I say in the very first class, I don't know what the meaning of life is, and I'm not going to tell you. I have no idea what the meaning of life is. I'm not a religious leader. No, I'm an anthropologist. How the hell would I know what the meaning of life is? All I can do is talk to you about what your own meaning might be. That's how I approach it. So, you know, in answer to your question, it's, I mean, it is broad. You're right. But it's not as broad as, the, as that title seems to signify.
0: I know you you hesitate to do this, uh, but through the years of teaching and thinking, um, about such themes as you know as uh, as happiness uh, would you would you help us at least guide us, if you will um, to an approach that 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 derives maximum happiness, because many of us uh, when we're young we we, we we think you know we, we think that there are s- certain roots. That would lead us to happiness, and that are more perhaps more certain than than other routes. But we seem to live in a time which is uh, which is just simply so uncertain.
1: Okay, well, that's a good question. Um... Obviously, a lot of external factors shape happiness. Mm. Uh, Something like the national security law in Hong Kong has probably led numbers of young people to feel more insecure and less happy about their futures in Hong Kong and so on. Other people, maybe not. I mean, it affects different people in different ways. But Mm. the the, and of course, COVID-19, if you graduate from university and you can't find a job. Yeah, you're going to be quite unhappy. So uh, external factors do play a role. but. I guess aside from that, the key is pretty simple. Don't ever pursue happiness. Mm. The pursuit of happiness is fake because you know, you'll be looking everywhere. Am I happy? Am I happy? Where do I find happiness? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't even think about it. Instead, um, find uh, friends who you really can trust. Find somebody you love as your, uh, your partner in life and find a job that's really fulfilling. Now, this is far easier said than done. It's really easy for me to say, oh, just find this stuff. Oh, yeah, right. But nonetheless, if you find these things, then the question of happiness doesn't really ever enter into play. And and I myself, I mean, I need to say I'm not particularly wise or anything, but one thing that I I have been able to be free from is ever thinking about whether I'm happy or not. You know, uh, 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 I like to drink little bit at night not too much but if i've worked and it's it's 1 a.m and i've been working i go to bed pretty late it's a lot of fun to have a a small glass of whiskey and just sort of sit and, and look outside and think wow life is pretty interesting yeah i guess i'm pretty happy that's the only time it would ever come into mind other times i give it no thought which is probably the best thing to do
0: so so that is to just live every moment Live every moment as if it were, you know, it, it were your last and uh, just enjoy,
1: enjoy well, the moment. I do it. I'm not assuming that the ceiling is going to collapse one <laughs> moment from now. So I've got to live. No, I'm assuming I'm going to be around a few more decades. But, you know, basically just, uh, yes, enjoy life. And I, I guess part of that is to remember that... Um, you know, we're given a gift of having been alive. And uh, as I tell my class in Meanings of Life, uh, remember, life is not uh, made of uh, achievements. It's made of moments. And what I mean by that is forget about your CV, your resume, nobody's going to care about that. Yeah, think about it now when you're looking for a job, if you're an undergraduate, for example, or a fresh graduate looking for a job. But, you know, when you're dying, you're not going to think, Oh, I wish I'd become vice president in charge of sales. No, you're not going to think that. Oh, I wish I bought a bigger flat. You're not going to think that. No, it'll be the people you've loved. And it'll also be things like, you know, feeling the wind as it blows against you when you walk out of your office, as as happened to me last night. It'll be marveling at how beautiful the moon looked a few nights ago when it was was, uh, orange, that kind of thing. How, how great a thunderstorm is to listen to, that's going to be what really is going to shape you. And, of course, the people you love and your time with them. So that's really important to, to, to bear in mind. Mm-hmm.
0: Please do tell us about the department from the time you came. You've, you've been in the department 25 years now, 26 yeah. years?
1: Yeah, it's been, damn, I can't even count. What has it been? Probably 26, if I count. Yes. It's been a long time. And I'm scheduled to finish up here in three years. So I won't quite make 30. Maybe I'll beg them to give me one extra year so it could be 30 years. Or maybe I'll reach 30 if it's three more years. I don't know. If that's an interesting idea. Um, and it has been a very long time. And um, it's been good to be here. And I'm surprised that I've stayed all these years. Because you know, most of my life, I've been relatively restless. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever lived in a place more than about four years at a time until I came here. So why have I been here the whole time? (laughs) Um, It's interesting. I did um, have a a chance potentially to go and teach uh, at Stanford in the late '90s, Mm. and they did not offer me the job. I'm not saying I said go to hell. I don't want to be at Stanford. I'm not saying that. But um, I had resolved that if they did offer me the job, I would have said no. Oh. Because I'd rather be here Now, come on. If they had offered me the job, would I really have said no? It would have been an interesting test of my character. But I've resolved, I would have. There was another job offer in Japan in a, a very beautiful place and a very good university. And I decided not to take that. So a couple of times I have chosen to stay in Hong Kong. And I've wondered why. Hmm. Um. Now, I really like the professors here. Mostly I did throughout much of my career, but it hasn't been that. It's been much more the students. I have really liked students in Hong Kong a lot because um, most of them have a sincerity that I find to be really great. Hong Kong students, it doesn't have to be Hong Kong students, but many are. And um, what it is, this conscientiousness in in really studying and really thinking for themselves. And I I guess I can say about Hong Kong students, uh, I sense that many are intellectually extremely liberal and extremely searching. Mm. But personally, they have a degree of conservatism, Mm. um, which I think is a good thing. Mm. That doesn't mean don't get drunk sometimes. That's perfectly okay to do. But don't do it every night. That doesn't mean, you know, don't have uh, several boyfriends or girlfriends in succession. That's perfectly fine. I mean, I did the same thing. That's perfectly fine to do. But it does does mean don't make that the center of your life. Instead, make your studies a key part of your life. Maybe not the center, but a key part of your life. Take them seriously because they are important. As I always tell my students, university is one time where you really can devote your time to learning as an adult. Once you are in the work world, you can keep reading in your free time, but it's harder to do. Now, at CUHK, yeah, you can go back and get a master's degree maybe if you want. You can even go get a PhD at some point if you want. But but still, that becomes more in a career track. You're looking for your career. So the one time you have to freely learn really is as an undergraduate or as an MA student. So make use of that. And students do. I've really enjoyed uh, uh, being with students. and I also have the sense that over the last 25 years, the years I've been in Hong Kong, students have gotten a bit better. They're searching more. Uh, They're more sophisticated. And that's due to two factors, I think. One is Hong Kong becoming uh, more middle class. Mm. And many times we think middle classdom is not a good thing. I think it's great, though, because it means students don't only have to worry about the career, what they're going to do. And for that matter, employees had become more accepting. It used to be back 20 and 25 years ago, students would tell me that they'd go to an employer and get a job interview. and And the employer would say, why on earth did you study anthropology? Whereas now it would be more, well, you've studied different cultures. You know, this company has one branch in Thailand and another branch in Japan. I can't communicate with them very well. I know you don't speak Thai or Japanese, but can you tell me the cultural differences? That's the kind of thing students might run into. So students sense that it's more valuable. And this is all part of Hong Kong becoming more liberal in its sense of what education should be, what university education should be, not simply training for a career. Mm -hmm. So all of these things have meant that the experience of teaching has become quite a bit uh, better over the years. It also may be because of my own reputation where um, it, it used to be I would teach a lot of required courses and students didn't necessarily want to be there. But now I teach general education classes and the students who take it often are pretty interested in the topic. And so they won't only have read my assignments, they'll have read other things too. And even if they haven't, they'll be interested in what we're talking about, that's fine. Now, I always tell students, I don't care if you do well or not in my class. I mean, if you got a C, I will like you just as much as a human being as if you got an A. It doesn't make much difference to me. You know, it's fine. So I certainly don't need to be judging students on this basis. But it still is a lot of fun to have smart students, (laughs) as I think mine are, whether they're A students or C students. They still tend to be pretty smart. They want to engage the material. That's a lot of fun.
0: So, so, Gordon, obviously there's been a, a change in the, may, may, maybe in the attitudes of the students, but what about uh, at the MA level, at the master's level? Um, th- there's a different demographic, I suppose, of students, more students from the mainland. Um, what, what do you make of uh, the, that, that population?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. Mm. Um, I'm very happy we have uh, mainland students coming in here. Now, mm. the MA students aren't only mainland students. We have a range of people. One of my favorite students was an American who uh, was uh, lived in Alaska in his ca- a cabin alone, working part of the, the fish and game uh, reserve there. And, you know, he'd lived alone in a cabin for seven years and then decided to come to Hong Kong to get an MA degree. That's very cool. A very interesting character. Incredible. Um, The mainland students, though, it's great. They're coming here as MA students, particularly during the protests, I think,
0: Mm.
1: because at that time, you know, you had students from the mainland with a very different point of view from many Hong Kong students. And what we should do anthropologically is get them together talking. And they did. They didn't Mm. agree, but they certainly were able to communicate. And that's what it's all about. Uh, God
0: induced you foresee this continuing into the future? These are quite difficult times. Um, but uh, do, do you think this will continue for a few uh, more years to come before, you know, things get sorted out or things stabilize? What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it probably will mm-hmm. now. Um, there is a small chance I myself could get into trouble because I do think it's very important to teach in an academic way about a a range of topics. Mm. So that in in my class on culture of Hong Kong, you know, we have to talk about how do you see the future of Hong Kong? Mm. I mean, we've got to talk about that. And many people are pessimistic. I'm a little more optimistic, but we've got to talk about these kinds of issues. Um, Now, this is not an issue just for me as a teacher, obviously, and I'm sure Rocky Tuan, the, the VC of the university, is thinking a lot about this, too, uh, as our deans and other people. Of Can you keep academic freedom in this new environment in Hong Kong? Um, I am cautiously optimistic that indeed we can. And the way this is done is to teach critical thinking, but giving all different points of view. So that in my class on the culture of Hong Kong, one question I asked and probably will ask again this coming fall is um, explain the Hong Kong protests from several different perspectives, including that of the mainland Chinese government. Mm. And, you know, you can get a a Hong Kong perspective. Many students already have this themselves for democracy. But how would mainlanders and the mainland government particularly see it? Give their point of view, too, and give other points of view as well. So that you could see this from a multiple set of points of view and then derive your own conclusion as to what uh, these are really about. Now, I, I, I'm not going to ask in this question, give me your own opinion, because it could endanger some students. Yes. Uh, I, I don't want people to write things that can get them in trouble. But what I will say is give multiple points of view. And that's a way of understanding the world in a broader way than simply your own opinion. And, and that, I think, is a perfectly legitimate thing to do academically. And, you know, this is what teachers, uh, well, I can't speak for all teachers. This is what I should be doing as a teacher, I think, very strongly. You probably uh, are aware I wrote an article for the Hong Kong Free Press earlier this year about staying in Hong Kong for for the coming three years. Yes. I don't know about thereafter, but I'm I'm thinking that. Probably I can be free to teach as I do, because I think as, as most people would know who follow what I'm doing, I'm not a revolutionary particularly. Hmm. Um, I, I do side more towards a democratic camp than I do towards a, uh, an, an authoritarian camp in my own personal views. But I certainly am willing to speak about the benefits of an authoritarian camp if you compare China and the United States and how they've uh, operated Well, there clearly are pluses to both sides, and that has to be emphasized in class. So I think I'm an honest and fair broker here. Uh, That's what I'm trying to do in my classes, and I think students appreciate that. That doesn't mean we can't have our own personal opinions, but we can teach in a broad way. Okay, now you were asking about globalization here. Yes. Um, Yeah, I'm going to continue studying it one way or another. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. Interesting question. Uh, I have uh, finished a book on uh, senses of life after death in China, Japan, and the United States that's now off being read by referees for uh, an American press, and we'll see what that comes of that. I was thinking that might be my last book. Um, I was uh, thinking seriously of becoming an electronic musician hmm. and making that my life. The problem is that um, without meaning to, I was elected uh, deputy chair and then chair of the World Council of Anthropological Associations. And that means I'm going to be awfully busy, not for the next two years, but the two years thereafter when I'm chair, you know, that's a, a full time job. So it's easy for me to be an electronic musician in my 60s. But if, if I'm 75 years old, it's kind of odd if I go into a club at 3 a.m. playing electronic music. Who knows? Maybe I'll do it anyway. Nobody knows what they come. Um, interesting. I, I don't quite know why this has happened. Um, will I continue to write various anthropology papers and so on? I probably will if I'm asked to do it. And, you know, my own career has been fairly passive. It's curious how so much of what I do depends on being asked to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, with the interest in happiness, for example. Well, I'd written about ikigai, and then I was invited to UCLA to be at a, a symposium on happiness. And then I listened to all the papers, and then the organizer said, okay, Gordon, you edit the book. Wait, I don't want to edit the damn book. But I wound up doing it because I can't say no very easily. And that was another research interest. Stuff happens this way a lot. Chunking mentions I did decide on myself, but other sets of interests, I mean, these things just sort of spring up. So I don't know what I'm going to wind up doing. Um, The one urge I have in my life is being useful. But if 10 years from now, I probably won't be in Hong Kong, I might be, but I'm more likely to be in Japan uh, because my wife is Japanese. And if I'm in Tokyo or Sapporo teaching English to old people, that's a good way to be useful. I can imagine what it'll be like. What did you do this week? I went to the hospital. I went to the hospital too. What did you do in the hospital? The doctor examined me. I mean, that's what old people talk. That's my stereotype. Anyway, I don't know. But that's being useful. That's a good thing to be doing. You know, so uh, whatever may come is fine with me. But on
0: the point of being useful, Gordon, I I know that your Chungking mentions research uh, brought you in touch with... uh the asylum seeker population, the refugees yeah. uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, could you speak a little more about that? Uh, your involvement with uh, educating, uh, at least running a class on Saturdays. Uh, what, what, what kind of pleasures uh, ha- have, ha- has that experience uh, brought you?
1: Well, that's been a lot of fun. And that was one more accident I mean, what happened is, in and everything in life is an accident, I can say. It turns out well. What happened is in the year, um, it was 2006, maybe, I realized that an awful lot of people in Chunking Mansions were asylum seekers. And so I better get to know them. So I went to this NGO and said, well, you know, what can I do? And they said, well, you can teach a class. Teach a class? Okay, I'll teach a class. And um, it was on Saturday because I had other days I had to be in my office here. And for some reason, it just continued. And some of the same people, but a lot of the people have left. But you, we talked about research interests before. Um, I, I teach asylum seekers because it's a hell of a lot of fun. These guys are my friends. They're very smart. And when university students occasionally attend uh, my Saturday class, they're often amazed by how smart these guys are and how much they argue. Oh, man, everybody loves to argue. They're shouting back and forth and so on. I taught a class just last Saturday. We had the first live class in about a year. So a lot of people came. There was a big argument because one guy insisted that Donald Trump had indeed won the 2020 election. Yes, And others said, you are crazy. You are completely insane. Oh, man, there was shouting and people had to break these guys up because they were so so vigorously involved in this debate. This has been a lot of fun over the years. I also gave another paper two weeks ago about what happens to asylum seekers when they leave. And that's a really interesting talk because uh, a, a number of people I've known have left asylum seeker status to become refugees. And they often live in the U.S. One guy who comes to my class now on Zoom, because uh, we now have mixed mode teaching, yes. live in on Zoom, he is calling from his truck in the U.S. He's wow. driving across the rural south and uh, he's just talking about what he sees and joining the class. Um, another guy is calling from Malaysia. Uh, he's gotten status there. Another is calling from the UK, where he got refugee status. So various people have done different things. Another from Canada. But then other people are married. They've married a Hong Konger, and that's the only way they've had a chance to stay in Hong Kong. Um, still others have managed to get jobs as English teachers in places like uh, Indonesia and Vietnam. And the guy who went to Indonesia, uh, he called in last Saturday from Indonesia the first time because he just left last week. Oh, man, he was proud of himself. He stood in front of the mosque in Dempasar in in Bali where he's teaching. And uh, he just was so proud of himself. We were joking with him. So are you going to hire a domestic helper now with your wage as an English teacher? Very interesting. Maybe he will. Who knows? But these guys are my friends. They're some of my closest friends around. And people occasionally ask me, oh, you're doing charity. No, I'm not. To hell with that. I'm not doing charity for anybody. These are my friends. And so I talk to them. Do I help people out with money from time to time? Yeah, I do. Because why not? I have a lot more money than they do, but that's not the whole purpose of it. Uh, no, it's just, it's it's great to hang out with people.
0: And it's been quite accidental, like you said. It's, it's, uh, um, what is the situation with asylum seekers and refugees in hong kong i i i've spoken to some of them and uh, it revealed something that that remains largely hidden from mainstream society do you do you see a role uh, for anthropologists to 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 engage in this sort of work or
1: it's, it's not hidden. No, I, I would say absolutely. Mm. It's really not hidden. Mm. In fact, uh, in the last few years, asylum seekers are minor celebrities. Uh, oh. Asylum seekers have told me that it's very easy to find Hong Kong Chinese girlfriends now because instead of being the racial other, they become rather attractive, which many find very amusing. Um, no, they're not. That, I, I wouldn't say that. Now, there is a big worry that the immigration law will be changing in August. And it's likely to become far more strict. As Hong Kong becomes more Chinese, it's probably going to become less favorable to uh, asylum seekers from uh, places like South Asia and Africa. The people I have taught are pretty safe, probably, but new people coming in may not. We'll see what may come. But anthropologists have been pretty heavily involved in this. Sealing uh, has been involved. Uh, it's also true that one of our students, uh, former students, Innocent, uh, uh, graduated from this department, and he set up the Africa Center, which is a, a really interesting place where uh, many African activities are held for the local population. So you know, various people are doing various things. Um, yeah.
0: Well, what, what explains that change of status? And um, you, you you you? Or has it always been like that? Because
1: no, it's it's been a new change. Basically, in the last seven or eight years, Hong Kongers have decided they really don't like China. And so the racial other has become mainland Chinese. Now, is this a good thing? No, this too is a form of racism. But as I wrote about in the Hong Kong free press a couple of years ago, the new ethnic other in Hong Kong is no longer Africans. It's no longer South Asians. It's mainland Chinese. Mm. We don't see this immediately now. And it's not apparent because mainland Chinese have the power after all, they're the ones buying up real estate and so on. But, Simply walking in the street, speaking Wutawa, you are identified as being an other in the way that you're not by your skin color, as you might have been 10 years ago. One good friend of mine, the guy who went to Indonesia, spoke about this. He said 10 years ago, I'd go on the basketball court in Hong Kong and all the Hong Kong Chinese would leave. Hmm. Whereas uh, three years ago, I'd go on the basketball court and they would play basketball with me and then invite me to dinner. So a significant change happened. Where it's going from now, we don't know, because Hong Kong as a whole is in a, a strange and, and rather ambiguous state right now. We don't know where it's going and what's going to be happening. So it's not only asylum because I think it's all of us who uh, have, I wouldn't say trepidation about the future, but, but we're more uncertain than we were in the past. Where is this going to go? We don't know. And that's a confusing situation to be in, but I think we anthropologists need to just continue doing what we're doing to the extent we possibly
0: can. Well, Gordon, we, we have uh, another seven minutes or so. I had two questions for you, sure. one concerning uh, your memories in the field. Um, have you any memorable experiences in the field that you, you, you could share?
1: Oh, if people want memorable experiences in the field, by the way, newspaper reporters ask me this all the time, and all I say is, read my book and ask me about something. read any of the books because they 're full of nothing but memorable experiences there 's all kinds of memorable experiences, so i, I can 't really say anything too too direct about that. Um, what I can say is that field work does lead to a lot of very real friendships, mm-hmm. and there are people that i i 've known uh, very, very well over the years and um, that's been great. It, it, it's been great to have those kinds of human relations, and uh, the people I've done field work with—part, with part, some of them are simply in Japan. Uh, who I've seen them grow old over the years, as we've talked about, mm. and seeing what happens in their lives are really interesting. You know, one person uh, wins a great award; another person has a, a, a child who uh, is a hikikomori, staying at home and never mm. leaving. Another person gets five divorces. I mean, all kinds of crazy things happen. And it's fascinating to talk to my friends about this. The other group that I've done extensive field work with is in Chunking Mansions. And it's still a real delight to go there. Uh, one of the last times I was in Chunking Mansions, uh, a guy in an African bar took me aside and he and I began eating cola nuts because he had gotten cola nuts from uh, the Cameroon in, in West Africa. I'd never eaten cola nuts before, but what does this taste like? So drinking whiskey and eating cola nuts behind the stand in Chunky Mansions was kind of a cool thing to be doing. I found out a lot about his life. So, you know, it's just, this is all part of what goes on. Um, be open to talking to anybody about anything. And uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. I guess I can't tell one story because it's so good. This is from my last book on Guangzhou. All right. This was, uh, I was walking in the passage, the underground passage getting to Xiaobei. And I felt something in my, my pack. And when I got out of this passage, I saw my computer was gone. Somebody had stolen it. Oh. And um, I thought, damn, I got to have that computer back because I had like about a month's notes worth on it that I hadn't transcribed yet. And they would be forever gone yep. if I didn't get that computer back. So I asked one of the dealers, because there were people, Uyghurs, Uyghurs from Xinjiang dealing goods in that tunnel, and I asked one of the uh, dealers, look, what happened? Uh, do you know who took this? And he just pretended like he didn't speak any English, because I was speaking to him in English, or uh, I, 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 could, I tried in Cantonese, he didn't know Cantonese, he knew Putungua, and he knew Uyghur, but we couldn't speak. And then I asked him, was the thief Uyghur? And he said, Yes. And then I knew I had it because if I knew the thief was weaker, I knew that his ethnic group had been dishonored. So we talked a little bit and then he wanted me to sit behind the, the, his stall. And after about half an hour, I noticed about six old men were talking and they were gesticulating back and forth. I couldn't understand them, but they kept saying, computer, computer, computer. So I knew they were talking about my computer. Then after an hour, I heard this loud shouting and they brought in this poor old guy who they were just beating up. All all these young guys were just beating the hell out of him. And he was the thief. (laughs) And then half an hour later, I got my computer back. And um, I had said earlier, because I was desperate, I would pay. I I think I said I'd pay, be willing to pay up to uh, a thousand yuan to get this back. So as I was leaving, somebody said, don't pay anything. But then the two guys who had contacted me said, OK, uh, pay us now. And so I tried to pay them 400 yuan. And then they said, this is too much. They gave me 200 back. Oh. <laughs> <Very cool. laughs> so that was a very happy experience. And what I talk about that is that this showed that uh, don't call the police. The police don't know anything here. This, again, is low globalization. It's done out of ethnic pride. You, you don't yes. call the police. Uh, I actually had lunch with a Communist Party uh, police official who said, if you get in any difficulty, call the police. No, I never would have seen my computer. Instead, talk to people who know and their own ethnic groups have taken. What they were probably saying is, you know, that old white guy, he probably thinks that we Uyghurs are all crooks. We're all criminals. We got to show him that we're not all criminals. So that was great. I got my computer back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. Finally, Gordon, uh, perhaps you can uh, offer your thoughts on what anthropology uh, has to offer uh, at a time like this. You know, for 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 those of us who are not familiar with anthropology, right? Uh, the, mo- most people outside the university uh, may never have heard of anthropology. So perhaps in your concluding remarks, you could you could just tell us what it has to offer at a time of of such great uncertainty.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to uh, steal this idea from Michael Hertzfeld, who is an anthropologist I've known for a number of decades. He wrote an article, uh, and he recommended it to me, that was very good on this. It said that right now, governments all use official statistics. And statistics can lie rather easily. Now, many don't. You know, uh, but, but, but still, governments can alter statistics in a number of different ways. How do you get at what's really going on? And his argument was, well, through ethnography. If you do ethnography and talk to people, you can find out a lot more. Now, you can't find out broad statistics. Ethnography is very narrow and very deep because you only talk to a few dozen, a few hundred people at most. But still, you can find out stuff that otherwise you never would. For example in Chunking Mansions at the phone trade, um, how many phones are being sold really? Or in China, how many? what's the value of the exports that Africans are taking back from, from Guangzhou? You can't find out by, by official statistics because everybody is lying. Nobody's mm-hmm. telling the truth. You can't find that stuff out. You can only find out by asking questions so that, for example, in Chunking mansions, I got to know three or four phone stall dealers really well. And I would say, OK, how many phones are you selling per month? How many are copies? How many are knockoffs? And how many are genuine? OK, now, um, are, your, are your, the dealers, are, are the people who buy these phones African? Where are they going? And through these kinds of questions, I managed to come up with the estimate at that time that about 10 percent of the phones in sub-Saharan Africa had gone through Chunking mansions. This was in 2008, but that's a, just a statistic that no economist could have come up with because they didn't have the data for it. But through ethnography, I was able to come up with this. And, and I can't guarantee it's 100 accurate, 100% accurate, it may be 9% or 11%, but it's about as accurate as a person can get under the circumstances. So ethnography really can get at the underlying truth of what goes on so that if you could do an ethnography Not just at Chunking Mansions, but, you know, of Falun Gong, for example, or of uh, right-wing Christians in the U.S., or of the Chinese Politburo, for example, or of the U.S. Senate, anything. Maybe you won't be able to get insights in, you won't be able to get deep enough inside them. But ethnographies of anywhere can show you what's really going on apart from the more official stories. And what's really going on is really important to know in a democratic society and in a well-run society. We have to know not just what leaders want us to know, but what's really going on. And ethnography can help teach us that. This doesn't mean ethnography has to be revolutionary. No, there can be an ethnography that's very favorable towards the given policies of a given government. Fine, but it does mean we've got to know what's really going on. Is, is one right to say that ethnography
0: is basically the the signature methodology of anthropology? I mean, it's the, the significant contribution anthropology can make uh, to a better understanding of the world?
1: That's right. And I didn't define ethnography here, but some people who listen to this might not be anthropologists. What ethnography is is rather simple. It's finding people and talking to them at enormous depth. Mm. Now, very often it's living with them. So that, for example, I was in Chunking Mansions one or two nights a week for four years, Mm -hmm. talking to the same people over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. or same groups of people. Other ethnographies can be made on the basis of interviews. For Ikigai, for example, which I talked about earlier, that might mean talking to 100 people for 10 hours each about the story of their lives and meet them maybe three or four times, really find out. But it's talking to a few people to get really deep and on that basis, find out a larger set of human situations and even human truths. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. So you start off with a problem. You want to find out. In my case for Chunking mentions, it's why are all these different people here from all kinds of different countries? What are they doing here? Or for Ikigai, it was what do these people mean when they say they have an Ikigai? What's going on? What's the meaning of this word? Do Americans have this as well as Japanese? So you start up with a question and then just explore it as deeply as you can go. That's what it is. I might mention that in our Department of Anthropology, students all do their own ethnographies. You know, the last year they do their final year project. And we've had a lot of really interesting final year projects. I had one student Uh, The best student I've ever had, I think, who unfortunately is now deceased, who did a project on um, uh, toilets. What do men do in toilets and what do women do in toilets and how are these different? And she discovered that women are regularly conversing in toilets. Men don't usually do that. Why? (laughs) What's going on here? Other projects I've seen. Just last year, somebody did a wonderful project on dating apps and how people advertise themselves on those apps that show pictures and those apps that don't. And who goes to these and why and what they're looking for. Very, very, very interesting. These are all ethnographies where you investigate some particular question and really look into what it's all about.
0: Thank you, Gordon. I, I think uh, you've given us a great introduction of anthropology. Uh, we'll look
1: forward to you know, perhaps talking again Okay. Anytime. I'm, I'm always here. So whenever you uh, feel like talking again, it's fine. But uh, it was a lot of fun to talk, Tongi. Thank you.
0: Thank you again, Gordon. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the CUHK Anthropology Podcast. Please join us next time when we speak to Professor C. Cheng about her life and experiences in anthropology. Stay tuned.